passage that we're going to be uh, reading tonight is Exodus chapter 33. The book of Exodus chapter 33, we're going to read, beginning to read at verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out the Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go with you. Because you are a stiff-necked people, and I might destroy you on the way. Down to verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You've been telling me, lead these people, but you've not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name, and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways, so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people? Unless you go with us. What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I am pleased with you and I know you by name. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. Then the Lord said, there is a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will remove my hand, and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, Chisel out two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready in the morning, and then come up on Mount Sinai. Present yourself to me there on top of the mountain. No one is to come with you or be seen anywhere on the mountain. Not even the flocks and herds may graze in front of the mountain. So Moses chiseled out two stone tablets like the first ones and went up Mount Sinai early in the morning as the Lord had commanded him. And he carried the two stone tablets in his hands. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And as he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, 
the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Finally, go down to verse 29 of the same chapter, Exodus 34. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterwards, all the Israelites came near him. And he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. But whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. Then Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Amen. So the title of this, our final study in the book of Exodus, is The Renewal of the Covenant. And what we're going to be uh, thinking about tonight is drawn from Exodus chapter 33 to the end of the book, chapter 40. And these are really important chapters because they describe the renewal of the covenant following Moses' successful intercessions for the nation. And most importantly of all, these chapters tell us how under Moses' direction, Israel completed the task of building God's house, the portable tabernacle, so that God might live among his people and journey with them. And once again, Moses dominates the narrative portions of this section of the book. And so we're going to think about three matters tonight in connection with Moses. First, Moses and the presence of God. Secondly, Moses and the glory of God. And thirdly, Moses and the work of God. So Moses and the presence of God. One fascinating strand in the book of Exodus is the relationship between God's presence and the angel of the Lord. 
It can be a bit confusing, but I take great comfort from the fact that Moses himself appears to have been a bit confused about this relationship. You see, let me ask you, who was it who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? Chapter 3, verse 2, right right at the start where the whole story of the Exodus begins. Who was it who appeared to Moses in the burning bush? Well, it was the angel of the Lord. Okay? Yes, but in that same passage, it's crystal clear that it was the Lord himself who appeared to Moses and who was speaking to him. For example, we read in verse 6 of Exodus 3, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. So in some sense, God is present because the angel of the Lord is present. And then when we come to chapter 14, verse 19, the angel of God is associated with the pillar of cloud and fire, the symbol of God's presence, that went from its position in front of the people to take up a position at the rear of the people between the Israelites and the Egyptians. So the angel goes and God's presence goes. And then in chapter 23, Verses 20 to 33, God says that he will send an angel ahead of the people to guard them and to bring them to the promised land. And God says explicitly that his name is in the angel. He bears God's name. So we have this mysterious relationship between God and the angel of the Lord, which many commentators think is resolved by concluding that what we're dealing with here is a temporary, pre-incarnate appearance of the Son of God. The angel is God's merciful accommodation and mode of being through which he can be present with a sinful people. The angel is, in one sense, fully identified with God, and yet in another, is distinct from him. Only when we come to the New Testament with its fuller revelation of the triune nature of God and with the incarnation of the Son of God do we see how God can be with sinners in the fullness of deity and yet separate from them in heaven. So I'll leave you to ponder that. But what we need to do is we need to bring 
the tension of this, the confusion surrounding this, into what we read tonight in Exodus chapter 33 and 34. Following Moses' successful intercessions for the nation, God told Moses that he would send an angel, his angel, before them to ensure that they took possession of Canaan. But then God says, though the angel's going with you, my presence is not going with you. And I take that to mean that at this stage, although God has agreed not to destroy the nation, and though he has promised to take the nation safely to Canaan, he had not as yet agreed to journey with them in the tabernacle. Remember that the God who had come down to Mount Sinai had originally said before Israel's rebellion that if the people built him a tent, then he would come down from Sinai and dwell among them as they made their onward journey. You see, that's the context within which the exchange between Moses and the Lord takes place in the passage that we read earlier. Moses is unclear, is unsure about what the people's relationship with God is going to be going forward. Even with the promise of the accompanying angel. And Moses informs God of his confusion, his frustration in Exodus 33, verses 12 and 13. Moses said to the Lord, you've been telling me lead these people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have found favor with me. If you are pleased with me, Teach me your way so that I may know you and continue to find favor with you. Remember that this nation is your people. And in response to that, God gives Moses the answer he is looking for in verse 14. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you. And I will give you rest. Moses is given the cast iron guarantee that God's presence will go with them. And in context, I take that to mean that the tabernacle will indeed be built. And that the God who has come down to Sinai will come down and dwell in the midst of the people. But it's Moses' response to that in verse 15 that I want to focus on. And I think this is one of the most marvelous statements in the whole of the Bible. God has just says, said, my presence will go with you. 
Then Moses said to him, If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. And then verse 16, How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? Moses understands that the true distinctive of the people of Israel is the fact that God is with them. But just stop and think what was already in the bag for Moses and the people When Moses told God that he wasn't interested in taking one more step unless God himself was with them. Canaan was guaranteed. Their victory over their enemies was guaranteed. God had promised that he would drive out the inhabitants of the land. Their prosperity was guaranteed. They would enjoy the land flowing with milk and honey. They were guaranteed the lot. There would just be one thing missing. The presence of the Lord would not go with them. Moses wasn't interested in the blessings of redemption. If he couldn't have the God of redemption along with those blessings. And I really think we ought to pause here a little longer. You see, God has promised us the most wonderful future imaginable. We are heading to a glorious inheritance In heaven, the new heaven and earth, to be more accurate. And it's described in the most breathtaking way in Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Golden streets, pearly gates, healing leaves, living waters, no sickness or pain or crying, or death. What a place. What an experience. An eternity of that. Is the prospect of it enough to make you want to go there? Or, like Moses, by itself, Is it simply not enough? In fact, is the prospect of it unappealing if God himself is absent from it? Does heaven still hold its appeal if the one who makes heaven heaven isn't there? 
Now, we all know how we're meant to answer that question. But let's attach this reality check to our answer. If we are content to live without the fellowship of God today, if the experience of the presence of God is not our priority today, why would it be so when we get to heaven? If we're content to live without living fellowship with God day by day, could it be that we'd be content to live in a godless heaven? And if so, we must hear the warning. There is no such thing as a godless heaven in eternity. There is a godless place in eternity, but it bears another name. The surest evidence of God's salvation and a true relationship with God is the desire of God's children to walk with him and to know his presence day by day as we make our way to his home. And just before we move on to our next point, let me show you something else that Moses says to the Lord that drives this home. This is in the context of Moses' request to see God's glory, which we'll be thinking about in a moment. As God grants him his request, Moses returns to our theme. This is from Exodus 34, verses 8 and 9. Moses bowed to the ground at once and worshipped. Lord, he said, if I have found favor in your eyes, then let the Lord go with us. Although this is a stiff-necked people, forgive our wickedness and our sin and take us as your inheritance. Please note that last phrase. Moses did not say, please take us to our inheritance. He said, please take us as your inheritance. Can you see the enormous difference between those two statements and how Moses viewed God? God was not a means to an end the instrument of blessing. God himself was salvation's true prize. It's Moses and the presence of God. Let's think a little bit about another theme in these verses, these chapters. Moses and the glory of God. In a previous study, we noted how Moses had the unique privilege of ascending Mount Sinai and entering the presence of God on seven separate occasions. In addition to this, 
We're told in chapter 33, verses 7 to 11, that God repeatedly came down in the pillar of cloud and met with Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting that he had pitched outside the camp. And the Lord spoke directly to Moses on every occasion. But what I find so interesting about Moses' multiple encounters with God was the desire that they left him with. Listen to Moses speaking in the aftermath of receiving the promise that God's presence would go with him and the people. Exodus 33 verse 18. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. Quite simply, Moses wanted a fuller vision of the God whose presence he had been privileged to enter. And God responded by telling him that he would grant his request with certain qualifications. He would pass by Moses, but protect him by placing him in the cleft of a rock and covering him with his hand. Only after he had passed by would he remove his hand and Moses be permitted to see his back, but not his face. Moses' encounter with God's glory is then described in Exodus chapter 34. But what I want to draw your attention to is the effect of this encounter upon Moses. And those were the final verses that we read tonight in Exodus chapter 34, verses 29 to 35. And time does not permit us to go into the detail of this. Suffice to say that Moses was transformed by his encounter with the glory of God and it was observable to others. Now there's great theological significance in the fading of the glory upon the face of the mediator of the old covenant but I want to focus on how this applies to ourselves as new covenant believers in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 7 and 8 says this. Now if the ministry that brought death which was engraved in letters of stone, letters on stone, came with glory, so that the Israelites could not steadily look at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? Now we're skipping over a lot, but come down to verse 18. And we all, who with unveiled faces 
contemplate or behold the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Make sure you take this away with you. The way the people of God are transformed into the likeness of Christ is through being in his presence, through seeing him in his word, and beholding his glory. One day our sight of him will be so immediate and unrestricted that it will bring about our complete transformation into his image. That's what the Apostle John talks about in 1 John chapter 3, where he says, you know, what what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. But it does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. But as we await that glorious day of transformation, let me offer a very practical encouragement and challenge. If the route to our transformation into Christ's likeness is through beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians 4 verse 6, and that is the way we're transformed, then we can expect others to see the change. To get a glimpse of that glory. To encounter the Lord himself at some level Because our lives have intersected with them. And I would refer you to the case study of the apostles. In those challenging days following the formation of the church. What do we read in Acts chapter 4 verse 13? When they, that is the Jewish authorities, saw the courage of Peter and John. And realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men. They were astonished and took note that these men had been with Jesus. Something of the master had rubbed off on his followers. And it is ever the case. To genuinely behold the glory of God is to be changed by it. To live in communion with Christ is to be changed by him. Brothers and sisters, there is an organic link between seeing the glory of God and showing the glory of God. 
finally then, Moses and the work of God. And I think it's fitting that we'll finish our studies in Exodus here. I want to read with you how the book of Exodus concludes. Exodus chapter 40, the last Well, verse 33, then Moses set up the courtyard around the tabernacle and altar and put up the curtain at the entrance to the courtyard. And so Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. In all the travels of the Israelites, whenever the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle, they would set out. But if the cloud did not lift, they did not set out until the day it lifted. So the cloud of the Lord was over the tabernacle by day And fire was in the cloud by night, in the sight of all the Israelites during their travels. During all their travels. You see, this is where Exodus has been heading. God takes up residence in the midst of his people and leads them on to their promised inheritance. Moses oversaw the construction of the tabernacle and faithfully followed the Lord's instructions for the building of his house. And again, that is a subject in its own right. But I just want to leave you with three standout features of this great project that Moses dedicated himself to. And the application to ourselves will not be difficult to see. First standout feature is this. Individuals give willingly. And this is emphasized again and again in Exodus chapter 35 and 36. Walk with me through these verses. They are magnificent. Exodus 35, verse 5. From what you have, take an offering for the Lord. Everyone who is willing is to bring to the Lord an offering of gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet yarn, etc. Verse 21. And everyone who was willing and whose heart moved them came and brought an offering to the Lord for the work on the tent of meeting, for all its service and for the sacred garments. All who were willing, men and women alike, came and brought gold jewelry of all kinds, etc., etc. They all presented their gold as a wave offering to the Lord. Verse 26. And all the women who were willing and had the skill spun the goat hair. 29. All the Israelite men and women who were willing 
brought to the Lord free will offerings for all the work of the Lord through that Moses had commanded them to do. 36, chapter 36, verse 2. Then Moses summoned Bezalel and Aholiab and every skilled person to whom the Lord had given ability and who was willing to come and do the work. Verse 5 said to Moses, this is the people, the people are bringing more than enough for doing the work the Lord commanded to be done. Then Moses gave an order and they sent this word throughout the camp. Listen to this. No man or woman is to make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. And so the people were restrained from bringing more because what they had already had was more than enough to do all the work. The people caught the vision and gave themselves and their possessions so that the Lord's dwelling place could be built. And surely, as New Testament Christians, we've got to ask ourselves, should our commitment to seeing God's eternal dwelling place, the church being built, be less than that of Israel? It is our indescribable privilege that if we are willing God will use us to help build his eternal tabernacle. Is there any greater task in this passing world than that? Individuals gave willingly. Second standout feature. The community worked harmoniously. Do you know what's the most repeated phrase in these chapters that describe the construction of the tabernacle? You could miss it because it's never where the emphasis falls in the sentence. It's this phrase, they made. I counted 74 occurrences of they made. It's telling us something. The building of God's house was a corporate endeavor. It unified the people. They worked alongside each other for a common goal. Each person had a specific task, a particular area of responsibility, but everyone knew that their work was one contributing element in something much bigger. Everyone knew that what everyone else was doing was also significant and was to be valued. For without it, anyone's individual work was incomplete. Again, surely we can learn from this. In our service for the kingdom of God, yes, let's focus 
on our particular contribution and give it our very best. But let's also value the contributions of other brothers and sisters in different places and contexts. Let's not be parochial and self-absorbed in the work of God. Rather, let's possess a strong kingdom mentality whereby we support and appreciate and celebrate the efforts of fellow believers who are taking forward the cause of Christ in their work and witness for God. Individuals gave willingly, the community worked harmoniously, and finally, God's Spirit equipped the people for their God-given task. One of the benefits of actually reading these chapters that describe the building of the tabernacle is that you discover just how fundamental the ministry of the Holy Spirit was to the completion of that task. I counted at least a dozen references to spirit-given skill and ability in all the different areas of the work. Two particular individuals played key roles, Bezalel and Aholiab. You read about them in chapter 35, verse 30 and following. And these men provided oversight for all that was being produced. Very importantly, we're told in chapter 35, verse 34, that their task was to teach others. That's what we're told. And the tabernacle was a project involving both men and women. Chapter 35, verse 25 and 26. So how shall God's dwelling place be built today? In our New Testament context. The answer is that we are also fully dependent upon the presence and work of the Holy Spirit to complete the task. The ascended Christ has poured out the Holy Spirit upon his people and the Spirit has gifted each one of us to play our particular role in the church moving to maturity. Everywhere that the New Testament touches upon the subject of spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Romans 12, Ephesians 4, 1 Peter 4, everywhere the New Testament deals with spiritual gifts, it reinforces the truth that these grace gifts have been given to us by the Holy Spirit for the development of the body and not for personal benefit.
just going to read as we finish some verses from Ephesians chapter 4. Talking about this great project that God has of building his eternal dwelling place in his people. Ephesians 4 verse 11. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Verse 16, from him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. What better way to end our series in Exodus than with a vision of God's people giving willingly, working harmoniously, and using their God-given gifts for the raising up of God's eternal dwelling place. In my mind, that's something worth living for. May each of us discover our role and play our part in that glorious endeavor. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.